Hello everybody. This sermon is based on Matthew chapter 4 verses 12 to 25 and it's entitled Lessons on God's Kingdom. I'm sure many of us sat and watched the awful events unfolding in America last Wednesday evening. What we saw was what happens when a thirst for violence is allowed to take over. What we saw were the consequences of divisive rhetoric stoking the people to madness. What we saw was a land falling into darkness, sadly with death coming as a result. Those terrible scenes at the capital took place as two earthly kingdoms clashed. The followers of one highly charismatic and powerful leader meted out what they saw as justice on the ruling institution in the land. Casting all political persuasions aside, what we saw take place in Washington is a warning to all the world over. But for us tonight, it also forms a powerful illustration of the febrile atmosphere that was developing in first century Israel. A situation that would also eventually end up in disaster. Tonight's passage begins with a reminder of why the people of Israel were so desperately in need of God's kingdom. The first thing we read is that the prophet John had been arrested. Let us remind ourselves of how the situation in Israel had got to this point. It is a sad story of darkness and death. Ever since the exile of God's people in the Old Testament, the land of Israel had been ruled by foreign superpowers. First Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then the Greeks, and finally came Rome. Rome conquered Israel in a way that the Jews would never forget. In 63 BC, they laid siege to Jerusalem. For three long months, this siege lasted. And finally, when the people were weak and starving, they stormed in. They headed straight for the temple and ransacked it. They massacred the priests while they were performing their duties, violated the most holy place in the centre, and then went on from there to rampage through the land. Women and children were killed, crops were destroyed, and a period of great oppression began. Rome's final act in this catalogue of tyranny was to install Herod as their puppet king to rule over the Jews and do their dirty work for them. Of course, all this created nothing but resentment within the Jewish people. Festering, seething resentment. In these days of darkness and death, the Jews desperately longed for freedom. Now, in many ways, these feelings were to be expected. Unlike in America, in first century Israel, a genuine injustice had taken place. This was an awful period to live through, and we need to have the utmost sympathy for what the Jews suffered. Their desires for justice and release were wholly legitimate. But we also need to recognise that there was an added heat to those desires. The Jews believed that there was one God over all the world. They believed that they were his chosen people and had been right from the days of Abraham. Therefore, in their eyes, it just could not be right that this brutal pagan nation that worshipped idols and false gods should be rulers over them. 
The Jewish people also held resolutely to promises they had received down through the years that one day God would come and rescue them. These prophecies stated that a new king would come who would lead them into justice and peace. A king would reign not just over Israel, but over the whole world. In their eyes, there was to be no king but this king who would take up his rightful place on David's throne. This is the kingdom and this is the king that the Jews longed for, prayed for, worked for, were even prepared to die for. This was not just an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. This is what a first century Jew would have thought of if they heard you speak the words, the kingdom of God is near. These were powerful words, explosive words. To them, it meant that nothing short of revolution was on the way. And boy, did they need it. Of course, the great problem with all this was that among some very valid truths, actual words of God spoken by the Old Testament prophets, there was a whole lot of mistaken human notion on what the kingdom of God would be like. This can be clearly seen by doing a brief historical survey of the time. The Jews were so desperate for the kingdom of heaven to come to their land, by the time of the first century they had developed all sorts of ideas on how they might speed its arrival. So many ideas, in fact, by the time Matthew's gospel begins, Judaism had fractured apart. There were four main groups in the land. First you had the Zealots. They believed that if Israel wanted God's kingdom to come, then they, his people, had to play their part. The zealots were what we would call today freedom fighters. They believed in the power of the sword and the fist. The way to respond to their current situation was through violent revolution. They were to fight the Romans and see them off. When God saw that desire among his people, they believed he would send his Messiah to lead the people's army in a glorious but bloody military victory. Second, you had the Pharisees. They went for a different approach. They believed that God's kingdom would finally come if all the people in the land kept all the Jewish law for just one day. They believed that when God saw a pure land, then he would send his Messiah. As a result, the Pharisees set about creating hundreds of rules which they used to ring-fence the Ten Commandments. They wanted to stop the people from even getting close to breaking them. They fostered an atmosphere of extreme legalism in the land. Third, you had the Sadducees, and again, these took a very different approach. The Sadducees were not idealists like the Pharisees, they were pragmatists. They believed that God would send his Messiah in his own good time. Therefore, in the interim, they should settle down and make the best of a bad lot. They and the people should compromise with the Romans. They should water down the demands of their faith in order to become bedfellows with the powerful. The Sadducees were the Jewish elite, the temple class. They wanted to protect their wealth and importance. Finally, you had the Essenes. Their strategy was again wholly different. The Essenes went for complete withdrawal. They would close themselves off from the world in strict monastic-like communities until God's promised king came. 
By withdrawing from the world, they believed that they would keep themselves pure so they were ready for the Messiah's arrival. So this is the scene in first century Israel, and you and your family would be largely associated with one of these four camps. You are either a zealot with your heart set on violent revolution, a Pharisee on a quest for legalistic purity, a Sadducee living a life of compromise, or an Essene withdrawing from the real world in hope of something better. And this division was caused by the extreme pain the Jews lived with as they resided in an oppressed land while holding on to great promises about the kingdom of God. But here is the point of where I'm heading to. Here is where the events in America on Wednesday night form a helpful illustration. Here is the great problem with these fallen human notions of what God's kingdom should be like. All four of these groups ended up trying to fight darkness with darkness. Let me explain what I mean. If you take up the tools of violence, all you succeed in doing is creating more violence, more bloodshed, more death, more grief. The zealots just made the land darker. Indeed, the Romans became so sick of them. In AD 70, they utterly flattened Jerusalem, creating a level of destruction that has never been repaired. If you take up legalism in the quest for human purity, all you do is create further burden on an already oppressed people. Because human beings are sinful and always will be. It's just impossible for us to keep all of God's law this side of glory. Consequently, the Pharisees were the bane of people's lives. Their rules so strict, they couldn't even see their Messiah through them when he was standing right before their eyes. If you watered down your faith in a spirit of compromise like the Sadducees did, all you do is further starve the people of hope. The Sadducees compromised so much, by the end they didn't even believe in life after death or half of the Hebrew scriptures. Many Christians are taking this route of compromise in the face of the challenges in society today. Little do they realise at the same time they are losing their hope. Finally, if you withdraw from the world like the Essenes did, all you succeed in doing is becoming an exclusive sect that creates division and breaks up God's people. What is more, withdrawing from the world prevents you blessing those around you and telling others about God who do not know him yet. So to summarise, Israel in the first century was a dark and difficult place, a land of Roman oppression where even godly prophets like John could be arrested for no good reason. It was a land of suffering and death. But that suffering and and that darkness was only getting worse because of the way the Jews were responding to it. They had taken God's promises, wrapped their own mistaken notions around them and created a recipe for even more darkness in the land. Now that we know that important background, let's have a look at what happens in the rest of our Bible passage. Suddenly, Jesus arrives on the scene and brings with him something completely new. A new teaching, a new way to live for God. 
into the despair of Israel, he arrived shining like the greatest of lights, a light powerful enough to overcome the darkness. And the first thing Jesus does in verse 17 is that he calls the Jewish people to repent. He calls them to change direction, to turn around. They're to give up their mistaken notions of what the kingdom of God will be like and how to speed its arrival and follow his path instead. For Jesus has a radically different alternative to anything the Jews had previously imagined. Matthew states that as Jesus announced this, he fulfills what the prophet Isaiah had spoken. It's worth us briefly reading that prophecy. It comes from Isaiah 9. There'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now notice the difference between what Isaiah wrote and what Jesus fulfilled and what the Jews were hoping for. As opposed to the violence of the zealots, Jesus was coming to bring peace. As opposed to the legalism of the Pharisees, Jesus was coming to bring abounding joy and the removal of all burdens. As opposed to the Sadducean compromise, Jesus was coming to bring justice and righteousness, to give people a new passion for God and his ways. As opposed to the withdrawal of the Essenes, Jesus was coming to enlarge the nation of God's people until it stretched right across the world. He would reign as king over all of it. God's kingdom really could not be more different from what many of the Jews expected. Then from verses 23 to 25 of our reading, Jesus starts giving us the signs to back up his teaching. When we read of miracles in the Bible, they're never just for the sake of the miracle themselves. They are illustrations to prove his teaching. Jesus really is who he says he is. He will accomplish his goal. And in these verses, Jesus sets about preaching good news, healing the sick and driving out evil. Look, Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is all about. Healing. Healing of people. Healing of a divided nation. Healing of the world. And eventually healing of all creation itself. The kingdom I come to bring is God's kingdom of love, compassion and kindness. 
A kingdom of forgiveness, not revenge. A kingdom of peace, not war. A kingdom of such goodness, it'll be like a light shining in the darkness. And slowly but surely, that light will overcome the darkness until none of it is left. You want revolution? I'll bring revolution, but not the one you expect. I've not come to throw Rome out. I've come to turn the world upside down. From now on, the first will be last and the last will be first. From now on, grace and mercy will reign, not evil tyrants. From now on, God will be known by all. Even Gentiles, the enemy, will worship him as king. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's so much bigger than we often make it out to be. It is utterly world-changing. It is so good, crowds of people instantly began flocking to Jesus to hear him explain it. But to everyone who came to him, Jesus gave the same message. Repent. Turn around. Leave behind your mistaken human notions of power and success. Leave behind your violence and your legalism, your compromise and your withdrawal. If you want to benefit from God's kingdom, you must leave these patterns of thinking and walk in my way. The kingdom of light and love is here. The kingdom of heaven has started to take root on earth. And from now on, it will grow until heaven and earth are joined together and all is light and love. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. We've now covered a lot of ground in looking at this passage. But let me finish by saying this. It's only when we really understand the announcement Jesus was making and just how radically alternative his vision was that we can begin to understand why the likes of Andrew and Simon, James and John were prepared to give up everything to follow him. They were captivated by a person and a vision that redefined the world for them and gave them a hope beyond that which they had ever known before. When Jesus called these early disciples to follow him, he was giving them the privileged opportunity to join his kingdom work. It was the greatest invitation of their lives. Peter and Andrew, James and John gave up all they held dear to follow Jesus. They gave up a secure income, their homes and their families. In many ways, they gave up their lives for all of them would be martyred or exiled for their faith. What a difference they made. They walked with the Messiah and learned all he knew. They then helped plant his kingdom revolution in the world until it spread right around the globe. Andrew could not possibly have known he was beginning an adventure that would end up with him being patron saint of a land thousands of miles away all these years later. Now, this was not the first time that these four had met Jesus. We need to read the early chapters of John and Luke to see how their relationship with Jesus had built up over about a year or so. But we need to realise that Matthew records these things so briefly because he wants us to see why they joined up. They stepped out to follow Jesus because they were captivated by him and the kingdom of God he was announcing. Jesus gave them the opportunity to join in his work of love and light and life. He gave them the opportunity to use their lives to make a real difference on his behalf, serving the lives of those around them. And this they seized wholeheartedly. These four did not understand everything. 
They blundered about all over the place in the rest of the gospel, but they knew enough. Jesus was leading a revolution of love that would turn the world upside down and right way up, and there was no greater cause for them to give their lives to. It's the same reason that millions of Christians today right across the world give up ordinary lives, workplaces, homes and families to follow this king. The events in America this week have shown us all the darkness that the ways of this world have to offer. Here in this reading we find a solution, we find the light we all need. Let us choose to follow Christ today. Let us lay down our nets and start the adventure of a lifetime. We'll never regret a single day in the kingdom of God and many people will benefit as a result.